0: If you would please stand for a reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Psalm 125, verses 1 through 5. That can be found on page 298 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take this Bible home as our gift to you. Okay, Psalm 125 a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Landy. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, especially in in a day like today, Lord, we thank you so much for the promise of your word that tells us that those who, God, trust in you, that those who place their trust in you are like Mount Zion itself that we've spoken so much about that, that, Lord, that, that they cannot be moved. And Lord, in a, in a time when we see so much shaking around us, so much moving, Lord, we, Thank you for this beautiful promise of your word. Lord, we thank you that this passage tells us that you surround us to protect us and to defend us, to be a fortress about us. And we thank you for that promise, Lord, that that makes us secure and stable. God, we thank you for the promise of a limitation placed on your enemy's power over us. Lord, we thank you God, that, that you have promised to do good to us and to bring us peace. And Lord, I pray that this passage, as we explore it together, would be a source of tremendous encouragement to everyone who's gathered to hear. God, and, and we pray that, that we wouldn't just hear with natural ears, God, but that we would hear with the ears that have been granted to us by the Spirit, that our hearts would become inflamed, and that there, that our our spirits would rise to to meet you in your word, Lord, God, I pray for myself that you would strengthen me and make me able to do what naturally I could never do, and that is to represent well what you have said in your holy word, and so God, I lean on you, I rely on you, and ask for your assistance this morning in Jesus' name, we pray, amen, you can be seated um So we have, if you're a guest here today, I know we have several, we've been doing this series on the Songs of Ascent, and this constitutes 15 psalms, as I've told you, in the book of Psalms, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and what I've tried to do, um, maybe effectively, maybe ineffectively, but what I've tried to do is show you how that there is a progression in these psalms, that that uh, you know, the, the songs originally were sung by Jewish pilgrims who were ascending to the Temple Mount on Mount Zion to offer sacrifices and worship, as they were commanded by God to do three times a year, and and so these psalms are interesting. At some point in Jewish history, somebody compiled these 15 psalms as the songs, the songbook for that journey, is what they would sing and we've we've kind of seen how they do but but it's interesting the way that the holy spirit directed that they be uh, uh you know put together in, in the order that they are put together because in the psalms themselves you can see a steady progression upward of thought and so you can imagine these pilgrims and in, in, in ancient times rising in the geography towards mount zion and we see it as symbolizing in, in the new covenant we see it symbolizing different phases different realities of our upward journey in the Christian life. And Psalm 125 is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. If you were here with us last week, we talked about Psalm 124. And in that, it's just this fantastic praise to God for past specific deliverances. It's looking back and saying it begins like this. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say if the Lord had not been on our side when men rose up against us and and, it points back to all the ways that God has in the past delivered his people. But in in Psalm 125, we shift a little bit and we, we rise a little higher and the emphasis of Psalm 125 is on this assurance of our permanent security in Christ in God, and the central theme of this psalm, as I as I meditated on all this week, the central theme is permanence. It's it's steadfastness. It it reminds us of those things which cannot change, which cannot be shaken. There is a lot in our world that can be shaken. We know as we've prayed and wept that, uh, with this family that they've, they've experienced a shaking this week. But the beauty of this psalm is that it reminds us that there are things that cannot change, that cannot be shaken. Our security as believers, God's love for us, His protection for us, it, it, the safety of our inheritance in Him cannot be threatened. It cannot be challenged. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be shaken. And this psalm consists of four distinct parts that all serve to make this point. First, in verses 1 and 2, we see our security as believers. Verse 3 contains a promise. Verse 4 is a prayer of the psalmist for continued mercy. Verse 5 issues a strong warning. And we see here the, the in this over the overall psalm, we see that God is, as he is called so many times in the psalm, he is our rock. He is our refuge. And there's a great and sure promise. The psalmist is pleading with us to understand, to recognize, to acknowledge, that there's a great and sure promise of steadfastly always trusting in the Lord. And here we, we see this, this beautiful truth laid out for us. And it reminds me of what Isaiah, in his book of prophecy, said to the people. He said He's speaking for God, and he says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, and they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. You may be under all kinds of pressure and questions and pain right now. There may be a heavy burden laid on your back. But the good news is, and and people would ask, why would you choose such a life? I I, I was had a testimony of a lady uh, several weeks ago, and she told me that, that when they were making a big decision in their life, somebody asked them, why would you choose to suffer? Well, this is why. Because... The reward of righteousness, even in the midst of suffering, is greater than, than the, the promises, the false and empty, hollow promises of unrighteousness. The Bible says, tell the righteous, it, will, it shall be well with them. And what Isaiah and the psalmist are saying is that when all is shaken around you and the ground literally feels like it's crumbling underneath your feet... We have verses like Psalm 125 that serve for us as a beacon of gospel hope, as an anchor that keeps us drifting into the rocky shoreline of fear and apathy and defeatism. And it begins like this with this incredible promise. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever, permanence. This verse affirms a doctrine that we affirm and we call, the or many have called, theologians have called, the perseverance of the saints. Now, when I first became a Christian and and as I, I learned about the Reformation and these doctrines about the perseverance of the saints, I, I didn't understand that because perseverance, you know, when I was getting lazy in high school, my teachers would say, Mark, you got to persevere. And I thought, and so I heard this idea of the perseverance of the saints and I thought it was telling me to invest blood, sweat, and tears in my own righteousness and, and to fight hard for it and make sure I didn't do anything that would make God angry. But perseverance here is not speaking of the need to work hard to earn, because we can't, or keep, because we can't, our salvation. It means that God works in us and He causes the saints, those that belong to Him, to persevere in faith uh until the very end it's it's god's working in us that makes us able to hang on when it feels like there's nothing to hang on to has anybody ever experienced a time in your life like that when it seemed like that, that there was it made more sense to just walk away to cut your losses and to quit god and somehow your faith remained it's like when jesus told told peter he said peter Satan has asked to sift you. And and it's been pointed out many times that I'm sure Peter was thinking and you told him no, right? But no, Jesus didn't tell him no. He said he said uh, that Satan's desire to have you to sift you. And he said, "But I've prayed for you, Peter, that when you return, when you when, that your faith would remain strong and that you'll turn and encourage and bless your uh, bless your brothers." He is saying that that Peter you're going to get rocked in this life. And I'm going to allow you to get rocked in this life, but I'm praying for you. And you will not ultimately fail, Peter. I am on your side. What a great blessing. So don't misunderstand the word perseverance. R.C. Sproul preferred using the term, not perseverance of the saints, but preservation of the saints for clarity. And I get that. I agree with that. But the point is, that none of Christ will be lost. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. God's people are as immovable as Mount Zion. And remember this, we've been talking about this for now six weeks, Mount Zion was the Jews' destination. It's where these guys singing this song were heading. And for us, and so he's saying that... the, the they were going to take on the characteristic of where they were going to. For us, however, Mount Zion is just an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality, a a heavenly Jerusalem. So we can say with confidence, without injury to the text or heresy, that those who trust in the Lord are as firmly fixed and as rooted as heaven itself. Now think about that. Think about that. What is the destination of the Jews singing the song? Well, they're going to Mount Zion. What is your destination? Where are you heading? You are not, the Bible says, a citizen of this reality. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so you, like those Jews, will take on the characteristic as you are in Christ, you will take on the characteristic of your final destination you will become a spiritual man or woman, a heavenly man or woman. And it's not, going to be because, it's not going to be because of you, it's going to be because of the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Now can you imagine the Rocky Mountains or the Himalayas being moved abruptly, suddenly? Can you imagine them being eroded to nothingness? No, of course you can't. Why? Because they're permanent fixtures of the landscape of our planet. How much less can heaven the Bible says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. How much less, if that's true, how much less can heaven, the throne of God, be threatened, displaced, vacated, or wiped away? And what we're, what the psalmist is trying to get us to see, that those who trust in the Lord are as secure as these earthly mountain ranges or even heaven itself. They shall not be moved. And you know what? The King James Version says they shall not be removed. And I love that. Because what it tells me is that nothing, not only will I stand strong and stand stable because of the grace of God working in me, but nothing can ever evict me from the love of God in Christ Jesus as it says in Romans 8. We are firm. We are stable. We are rooted. We are anchored. We are planted. We are set in Christ if we have truly believed in Him. And the Bible is absolutely from cover to cover of this truth. Hebrews says not that we are saved, but that we are saved to the uttermost. Psalm 1 says that those who don't follow the wicked will be like a tree planted by streams of water, deeply rooted. Ephesians says that we're becoming fully mature in Christ and because of that we won't be tossed about by winds and waves of various false doctrines. We're anchored... Jesus said that those who abide in him those who live in him those who are uh, are grafted into him would produce f- fruit and guess what he said that fruit will remain so the question that comes to us as we consider this idea of perseverance or preservation what must we do what work must we do to access this promise to to benefit from these promises what duty must we perform well here's the good news absolutely none jesus says this in in uh in the the gospels he says that this is the work of god in john 6 he says this is the work of god that you believe in the name of the one who he has sent You want to know what you do to please God, to be one of His, to be preserved by Him? Just believe in the one He sent. The promises are freely given to those who trust in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, to understand what trusting in the Lord is, you have to make some comparison. And you ask yourself, do I trust in the Lord... And I don't mean some religious, you know, I raised my hand and walked an aisle and repeated a prayer after a preacher. I'm talking about do you trust in the Lord? Or by comparison, do you trust in yourself? By comparison, do you trust in the strength of the economy? By comparison, do you trust in the, the, the rulership of your preferred political party? What what The people that trust in the Lord have these promises, and these promises belong exclusively to those who have nothing to depend on, nothing to cling to, but Christ Himself. And they're the exclusive possession of people who trust in the Lord like that. John says it to us like this. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, if that's your preference, the love of the Father is not in Him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it makes big promises, but guess what the end is? John says, And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Permanence. Foundation. Rooting. Anchoring. So what is John telling us? He's telling us that you can either have the world or you can have Christ. You can cling to the world and you will have nothing of God's love. All the world has, it's completely filled, this whole world system is filled with nothing but the pursuit of personal desires, the elevation of our pride. Jesus said, uh, uh, what would it profit a man to gain the entire world, all of that stuff, all of that status, and, and in return to lose his very soul. The pursuit of all these things are not from God But those who trust in the Lord do so with the understanding and the revelation, if I can use that word, that everything this world boasts in is only an illusion. All the stuff that the advertisers spend millions to try to get you to lust after, it's just an illusion. It's a vapor. It's passing. Everything in this world consists Everything this world consists of is surely passing away, but but by comparison, the one who does the will of God, and what's the will of God? What's the work of God? To believe in the one who He has sent. The one who does the will of God abides forever. Permanence. Now we think often, every one of us has done it. There's nobody that's free from this, no matter what our theological roots are, but... We think our place depends on our performance. And we think our security depends on our sanctity from time to time. But here's the deal. We just sang it. But Christ has regarded my helpless estate. Oh my goodness. You don't have to be embarrassed that Jesus knows you're weak. You should rejoice in the fact that Jesus knows you're weak. Amen? Jesus knows we're weak. And you know why He came and lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose again to defeat death? You know why He did all that? Because He Himself loves to raise the dead. He loves to heal the sick. He loves to fix the broken. He is compassionate. And He's compassionate knowing full well we're helpless. A lot of times, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I've helped people. And I was just like, Come on now, you know, you gotta pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I can't just be, be your sugar daddy here. You gotta do something. And I think like that, but Jesus has never said a single thing like that to me. I stumble, I fall flat on my face, and He keeps pouring out mercy because His compassion is not diminished by my helpless estate. It is it is strengthened, it is encouraged, it grows, it expands because of my helpless estate. But if all that's true, if all that is absolute truth, if you believe what I've said biblically, it is an absolute insult to Christ Jesus when we call ourselves His, when we say we belong to the Lord, and yet we rely on the wisdom of another to bring any kind of salvation to ourselves. I'm not talking about just you know, some religious kind of salvation. I'm talking about any kind of salvation. When we look to money, to politics, to romance, to academia, to religion, or any form of our own best thinking to save our souls, our marriages, our children, our reputations, and even our very lives, it is an insult to the one who has saved us regardless of ourselves. Instead, instead our policy as believers should be to embrace the words of the Apostle Peter. You remember what he says? I'm going to actually read the greatly expanded version to you from the Amplified Bible. This is what Peter says. It says, casting all of your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on him, for he cares about you deepest affection, and watches over you very carefully. So you can have anxiety, you can worry about all the stuff that that presses on us that you got to take care of as a human being living in this life, or you can take it all and just throw it on Jesus with the full confidence that he cares for you. He is watching over you. And God is calling us to simply trust in him, to abandon all our own scheming, our scurrying. And we can only do this when we recognize that he alone is the sole source of any salvation, of any kind, we will ever experience in any area of our lives. Jesus is the source of every good thing you will ever experience, both in the natural and in the spiritual. Jonah, one of the Bible's great attempted self-saviors, Came to this conclusion as he was kneeling in the muck at the bottom of a fish's belly, he came to this conclusion. And he said in his prayer in Jonah chapter 2, he ended it this way. He said, salvation belongs to the Lord. I hope none of us ever have to go to the basement of a fish's belly to discover this reality salvation belongs to the Lord. None of it gets credited to our efforts. The author of Psalm 125 says that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They can't be moved in verse 1. But in verse 2, he tells us why this is always true. This is where it gets really good. Verse 2 says this, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forevermore. Listen, we talk about uh, preservation of the saints you remain saved only because God surrounds you, protecting you from sin, protecting you from the assaults of the devil, from the influence and the oppression of the world. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already. Amen? You don't have a chance in this world if God is not surrounding you, protecting you. Some of us have yet to have a single thought of God's preserving power in our lives, maybe for weeks, months, years, maybe not a a second thought of it today. But Hebrews 1.3 says this. It says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does that mean? It means that if Jesus takes even a single second off, if he leaves his post for a minute, everything's gone. You're gone Your salvation's gone. The world is gone. But no, he is constantly upholding the universe by the word of his power. Fourteen times in the ESV, the Bible we use around here, the Psalms call God our fortress. And eyes of faith see God as an impenetrable castle with high walls, a deep moat on a high cliff with cannons aimed in every direction. God is a fortification so strong that no enemy would ever dare try to penetrate it. And God, from that standpoint, as our fortress, our refuge, He protects those who belong to Him. We are physically alive today, as I said, by His grace and the sustaining power of God. And more, more than that, we're spiritually alive only because of the saving power of God. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, and, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it goes on in verse 4, it says, but God, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In other places, God is described as a shield about me. His defense of His people was depicted in the cloud that separated His People his, that were escaping through the Red Sea from, the, from Pharaoh's bloodthirsty army, God is a defense for his people. And just as every single atom in the universe, along with every created spiritual being, obeys the command of Christ forever, the duration of his covering of you, of you, of his surrounding and protecting of you won't be a nanosecond shorter than eternity. He says in this passage that he surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. What has begun by the grace of God will never end. You will be sustained long after this life is over. You'll be sustained in heaven only because of the grace of God. The grace of God has no expiration. The grace of God does not expire when we arrive in heaven. The grace of God is what sustains us throughout life. All of eternity, and you're experiencing it right now. We're kept by the surround by God surrounding us, and He's promised never to leave us. Immediately before His ascension, Jesus told His stunned disciples that He was with them always, even to the end of the age. Deuteronomy thirty one six God tells the uh, the people of. Uh, that were coming out of the Egypt into the promised land, he said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. This kind of promise puts ice water in the veins of your faith. If God is for me, if God is with me, who can be against me? And so this far we've been given a confident assurance that by trusting in the Lord we're secure because he surround us, uh, surrounds us and is ever near. But now we move from this blessed reality to a joyful promise. Verse 3 says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. In this life, Christ tells us in John sixteen thirty three that we will have tribulation. We're never promised that the scepter of wickedness will not come to our land. We're promised that the scepter of wickedness will not rest in our land. And the 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 idea that the that the scepter of wickedness won't even come to our land—that's the lie behind the prosperity gospel. That you'll never be sick or poor or in despair. But those who trust in the Lord have this promise of permanence that we've been talking about. The wicked, while while we have that promise, the wicked have no such promise. While we are kept for eternity, the wicked have very much an expiration date on them. There, There may be seasons when God chastens His children by the rod of the wicked, but it will not last. God will eventually overthrow them. Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod the Great are all biblical examples of this reality. They ruled oppressively. They ruled boastfully, but their kingdoms could not endure God's vindication of his people. God came and he vindicated his people and, and, and their kingdoms could not stand before that. And this is not, this, this verse about the scepter of the wicked is not God's promise To eliminate wicked rulers and the suffering they produce, it's a promise that they will not long endure. And that God's people have a sure hope that one day we will be delivered. Wicked rulers won't succeed ultimately in either an earthly or a spiritual sense. This applies to kings who oppress God's people in the natural world and also to the devil and the world system we talked about. And the reason for that is God is in command. Amen? God never relinquishes his scepter. He is the only one in charge. He uses evil rulers to accomplish his purposes, but he is always in command, ruling according to his will. We're told that God won't let the wicked scepter rest on us, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. There are two things in view here. First, God does not want us to abandon our trust in him, that which made us secure, in verse 1. He doesn't want us to abandon our trust in Him, to resort to self-deliverance, but He wants us to be patient in trial, patient in suffering. But He also doesn't want us to become obsessed with taking vengeance, taking justice into our own hands on those who oppress us, but to learn to love our enemies and pray for them and do good to those who deceptively and despitefully use and abuse us and to trust God that vengeance is His and He will repay. Trusting God means allowing Him to be the one who gets to determine, solely gets to determine how long the wicked scepter rests upon us knowing that he will never let it be longer than it should have been, but that he is nonetheless committed to seeing all of his purposes accomplished through whatever means he chooses to use. Now following this promise, we find a prayer. And it's this, verse 4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, this scripture, as many scriptures like it in the Bible, is very, very problematic to me. Because we gotta look at it, we have to ask ourselves, who are the good? Do good to the good, those who are good. Who are the good? What does it look like to have an upright heart? And, and you probably get where I'm going with this. I talk to people all the time, sharing the gospel. And they tell me that they're basically, always in air quotes, basically good people. And the standard that they use, invariably, Is the fact that they've never murdered anyone, that they've never been arrested, that they don't cuss much, and they don't, and and that that when the time comes, they always stand for the national anthem. And so, by these standards, they're good people. But Jesus said this troubling thing in Mark chapter 10, and speaking to the rich young ruler, he said, There is no one good except God alone. Uh oh. There goes the rug right out from under our feet, doesn't it? Similarly, Paul told us there's no one righteous, not even one. The Scripture is clear that goodness cannot be found in us. It can't be found. It doesn't grow out of our weak morality. But Paul speaks of this. It's so beautiful. He speaks of this. He says that I want to be found in Him... Not having a righteousness of my own, because there ain't none. He didn't say that, I said that. The righteousness of my own that comes from the law, and trying to keep the law, and submitting to the law, but I want a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends not on the law, but on faith. Being good has nothing at all to do with anything found in our dark Fallen nature. There are going to be a lot of good people cast into hell in the final day. Many, many, many. And there are going to be a lot of people who were uh, in the eyes of many, unrighteous, unworthy, uh, and, and and welcomed into the kingdom. Jesus said this. He said, he, he said to the Pharisees, and boy, man, you talk about stirring up a hornet's nest. He, th- he, told, he said the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to make their way into the kingdom ahead of you, is what he said. What was he talking about? He's talking about this kind of righteousness. It's faith. It's the very trusting in Christ that makes us firm and fixed as Mount Zion. And it causes us to be reckoned as good before a holy God. And it's... His nature to pour out His best gift. Do good to those who are good. He, he, he pours out His best gift, which is nothing less than Jesus Christ, on those who have trusted in Him. By faith, He makes our twisted hearts pure and upright before Him. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, you know it. It says, for His sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So by faith, let me put it to you in very blunt terms, by faith you, with all of your faulting, all of your failing, all of your stumbling, by faith you are as righteous as Jesus because he's made you that way. Not your own goodness, not your own morality, he has made you that way. And it is the affirmation of a true believer to recognize that, that I am in Christ by faith as righteous as Jesus. And this is not called, this is not earned righteousness, not anything we reproduce. It's called imputed righteousness. It's never earned, but it is freely given to those who trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to be their defender, to be their advocate. They get that kind of righteousness. Now finally, after our holy confidence has been established, the promises to be given, and prayer has been offered, we must have a warning. Because see what, what the truth of the matter is not all of those on the road traveling to Jerusalem are true Jews and not all sitting in the church are true believers. And so the the psalm that we're studying says in verse 5 but those who turn aside to their crooked ways the Lord will lead away with evil doers. Peace be upon Israel. Now What this is telling us is in the words of Jesus' parable is there is a day coming when God himself will separate the wheat from the tares, the the valuable crop from the weeds. And turning aside, what I want you to understand, this was really interesting as I began to study it, turning aside to crooked ways in this passage doesn't mean scandalous, blatant sin here, the things that the people list when you ask them if they're good, murder and all those things. It doesn't mean that. It means the secret scheming of my wicked heart. The way I try to work my way into, uh, into heaven, the the way that I conceive of my own ways, Jesus said if anybody wants to, wants to, uh, you know, come to me, he has to go through the door. He says, I am the door. But sometimes people want to go through religion or ceremony or, or academic stuff and, and they they miss it. It's the ways we work our way into heaven. See, the Jewish pilgrims that were studying, going to Jerusalem, they had a well-worn trail to follow to Jerusalem straight as an arrow, right to the holy city. And those who turn aside off that trail to crooked ways, they're always just trying to blaze a new trail and different trail. Let me tell you something, the people you should be the most cautious of is when they tell you they have something new to add to Christianity. You should be very frightened when somebody says, "Well, I heard this word from the Lord," or "I had, you know, I I, uh, had a vision from an angel," or "I had this or that," or or maybe they just have a new perspective on something. You should be very, very wary of that. In fact, if I can be honest with you, you should reject it outright because we have well-worn trails, and there's many things that pass for Christianity today. If you dare to point out that they are not biblical, get ready. You're going to be called judgmental. You're going to be called narrow-minded. You're going to be called a bigot. All kinds of epithets are going to be given to you because you have questioned this new revelation. But Christ's true followers are not intimidated by the accusations of bigotry. Because they say with the Apostle Paul, let God be true in every." single man, a liar. Proverbs has this cryptic thing that you might not understand, especially where we live. It says, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Simply stated, God's ways are well worn, they're well marked out in Scripture alone and we abandon this well-marked-out path to our own peril. The promise for those who abandon the straight and narrow path of God's revealed will for a crooked path is that they will be led away with evildoers. Now remember, I said these aren't murderers, they're not rapists, but they're, they, they're those that, that may have had the very best of religious intentions. But they're abandoning God's path. And what this passage tells us is that they will certainly punish, they will certainly perish and be punished, just like the worst, the murderers, the rapists, the thieves, the liars, for abandoning the path. Why? Because they didn't trust in the Lord as He revealed Himself. Those who trust in the Lord are, are, are cannot be moved like Mount Zion. They were not immovable. They didn't have the protection of God's fiery battlements around them. The scepter of the devil himself will rest heavy on their shoulders, bringing forth their destruction. God did no lasting good to them because they rejected him. Their hearts were not made, were not made upright. And at last we see them led away to destruction. But those who did dare to trust have this promise, this declaration. Peace be upon Israel. Now Israel, for our purposes, and, and we can back this up with Paul and Romans and Galatians, is not speaking of an ancient nation or even a modern nation. Peace be upon Israel is, is speaking through the, through the revelation of Jesus Christ of the true church. Those who trust in the saving, surrounding, ancient God who has marked out our path. Paul says as much in Romans 2 when he says, A man is not a Jew because he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision only outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew because he is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise does not come from men, but from God. And so my declaration to you today is that if you are trusting in the Lord, you are as unmovable as Mount Zion. That you have a promise that you are surrounded. Michaela, you have a promise that you are surrounded by God. And and that it will be the way it is forever and ever. We have the the promise that though we may someday be under the, the, the scepter of the wicked, It will not rest on us, but we will be delivered. We have the promise that God is a God who does good to those who are good, and we're only good because we've trusted in Christ and he has made us good. And then we have this blessed promise that peace will rest upon all that belong to him. Amen. We're going to receive communion from the Lord's table. If I could have our helpers come. To Assist us, if you would all stand with me each week in our church, some churches do it you know every month or every quarter or whatever, but in our church we we've found it very important to come to the lord's table every week because we are reminding ourselves that our trust is in nothing out there. It's not in here. It's not in our goodness or, or our wisdom or our strength. But we're reminding ourselves that we have trusted in the Lord and that the basis of our trust is His sacrifice, that He, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds, by His stripes, we are made healed. And as we remind that, it just increases it's a it's a an a, a, a an ordinary means of grace that helps us to remember and helps us to to experience the presence of Christ as we trust in him and it helps us to be firmly rooted firmly planted firmly founded and 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 set in to Christ so don't come lightly but don't come somberly come with rejoicing in your heart if you're not a believer, please don't come. It mean nothing to you. The Bible says it can actually mean that you are eating and drinking condemnation to yourself. We don't want to encourage that. What we do want to encourage is that you would believe in Christ, that you would make Him Lord, that you would realize the folly of your empty life, the folly of all your pursuits and your crooked ways, and that you would put your full trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're one, if you want to talk about that, explore what that means, what that looks like in your life. Please come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Dave after service. Come talk to anybody wearing a name tag, and they'll get you to the right folks and help you with that. But for the rest of you, let's come celebrate that God has made us firm. That He has He has uh, surrounded us. That He has lifted the the scepter of the wicked from among us. Go ahead and. Come and we'll receive the elements, and we'll and then go back to your, your uh, seat, and we'll take them together. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, in your own way, in your own words, I would just like to ask you to, In consideration of all the promises and consideration of the elements of this table, can you just give the Lord Jesus thanks for saving you, for surrounding you, for protecting you, for keeping you? Father, we thank you. Lord, we have been lost before we could have ever been saved if it hadn't been for your mercy, if it hadn't been for your grace. Lord, even after believing, we would have been lost. We would have been doomed. destruction, to hell, if it hadn't been for your keeping power, for your infinite grace, for your forevermore grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for the, the fact that you love us and that you chose us and that you are keeping us. And, Lord, that you are still shaping and correcting us, disciplining us, causing us to turn our stubborn hearts towards you in worship and in praise. And so, Lord, I ask that that with the taste of the bread, the taste of the cup on our lips, Lord God, that we would would be reminded again and that we would re-dedicate ourselves to the covenant, that we would re-up ourselves into the covenant, Lord God, and believe that you are enough, that you are the one that, that we don't need to rely on, trust in any other thing, just in you. So, Lord, we do that this morning. We we remind ourselves, and we thank you for the sweetness of the reminder of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction over you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In the name of the Father, In the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.